Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket. I'm your host, Peter Delapena, and on this episode, I welcome Jake Perry, the author of two books, The Secret Game and Playing with Teeth, which he's co-authored with Gary Heatley. Both focus on Scottish cricket, one about the deep history of the game, and one more recent events in Scotland's rise to ODI status and beyond. And with USA touring Scotland, Jake makes a great guest. Jake also hosts the Cricket Scotland podcast, and I've worked with him in commentary duties on ICC TV. And with USA Touring Scotland, Jake makes a very timely guest to have on the podcast. So we'll hear from Jake in a bit. But first, I want to thank the latest Patreon, Eagle. I'm all Ekbal. I'm all. Thank you for becoming an Eagle supporter of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast through Patreon. I believe Amal is based in Austin, Texas. And there's been a lot of growing support coming out of Texas in recent times for American cricket and support for the podcast as well. So I appreciate your support, Amal. And if you want to become an eagle or a patriot like Amal, go to patreon.com. Everybody's support helps keep the podcast running on an episode-by-episode basis. And I also want to remind everybody that the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast is presented by Dream Cricket. The Dream Cricket Store can help you fill up all of your cricket kit requirements. Go to dreamcricketstore.com and get 15% off your first order. Dream Cricket Store also offers free shipping on all orders over $200. Go to www.dreamcricketstore.com to take advantage of those great offers today. And I also want to thank our other sponsors, Moosa Cricket Stadium, the first turf wicket facility in the state of Texas. For more information, go to www.moosastadium.com. That's M-O-O-S-A stadium.com. Moosa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas, as well as Crickbuster, which is your one-stop shop for all of your touring plans if you're going to the ICC Men's T20 World Cup in Australia this October. Go to www.crickbuster.com to begin planning your trip today. And now, the interview with Jake Perry. Today's edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket. We are joined by noted author of The Secret Game and most recently Playing with Teeth, two books on Scottish cricket one about the history of the game going a long time back, and then the second one playing with teeth more recently about Scottish cricket, starting with the men's team in 2013 up to present day, and also the host, co-host of the Cricket Scotland podcast. He wears many hats. He also broadcasts games for ICC TV. I know that because I was sitting alongside him in Glasgow. Jake Perry. Jake, welcome to the podcast. Peter, thank you so much. It's absolutely huge pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, it was a delight sitting next to you over this uh, this last week as we record this. Uh, Scotland against Namibia and Nepal. Great tri-series. And yeah, it was lovely to have your company and nice to see you again. Pleasure was all mine, Jake. It's good <laughs> to see you after a long time, uh, at least three years since getting a chance to come up to cover matches in Scotland. You used to make the trek quite frequently over the course of the summers and then COVID happened as everybody knows. But uh, yeah, it was great to, to get a chance to re-immerse myself in the Scottish cricket community up in Glasgow in particular. I hadn't been for the first time. I've uh, been to Aberdeen and Ayr and Edinburgh and Dundee and Stirling and Glasgow is one of the last places I had yet to tick off on, on the list. And for US fans who follow this podcast usa is going to be coming up to aberdeen in august 
and they'll be playing the tri-series with UAE and Scotland. So I guess for people who have not experienced cricket in Aberdeen or cricket in Scotland from the U.S. perspective, what would you say to U.S. fans or U.S. players or anybody else involved in U.S. cricket who is paying attention to this? What should they be expecting when USA is going to be touring Scotland in August? Well, great hospitality, first of all, as uh, as we experienced too uh, in Glasgow and Air and, and Manafield, a really historic ground. It's famously where, where Donald Bradman made his last appearance on, on UK soil back in 1948. And uh, yeah, just like the US, uh, USA too, so much history around the Scottish game. USA, of course, the participants in the first ever cricket international match back in 1844 and and, and Scotland has a, a really rich historical tradition of cricket too uh, and pitch wise I mean Manorfield was uh, was the host for the first uh, the inaugural cricket world cup league two tri-series actually right back in in 2019 before the world went a wee bit strange um, and Oman and, and PNG visited it was a, it was a spinners series that one very much uh, dominated by, uh, by by spinners, really dusty track there was at, at Manorfield that time. So yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what kind of pitch is waiting. We saw some really seam-friendly conditions over this last week, spin-friendly before. We're looking forward to it very much. There's a great history, as you said, in, in both countries, international cricket, U.S. fans in particular know the U.S. diehards, and a lot of associate cricket fans too would know that. The first international was in 1844 between the USA and Canada in New York City. But cricket in Scotland, as you said, it's got a very, very rich tradition going back hundreds of years. And I know there's a lot of nuggets that are part of The Secret Game, which is your first book. One of those things that we, we talked about on air during the broadcast we did together, the first football, European football, soccer international. Again, we've got to cover all the, the variances and terms for the yes. Americans who are listening or watching. But England and Scotland at Hamilton, first football international, was played at a cricket ground. What more can you tell us about this historical factoid? Yeah, at Hamilton Crescent, uh, which is the, the home of West of Scotland Cricket Club. Uh, and it was indeed the best venue for the, for the first ever international goalless draw between England and, and Scotland. The Scotland team was if, effectively was the Queen's Park team at that time, who were great pioneers. But amongst the, the all of the other pioneers, really, of, of Scottish football are cricket teams, essentially. The, the founder members of the, the Scottish Football Association were Queen's Park plus uh, 11 cricket teams uh, because football was seen as something for the, the cricket clubs to do in the wintertime, keep the players fit keep the social aspect of the club going and and so on and, and Clydesdale Cricket Club where we were for four of the games just over the last week uh, Clydesdale were actually finalists in, in the first uh, ever Scottish Cup final and so th there's a there's a huge sort of debt of gratitude I suppose that Scottish football owes to to cricket the the, the, the far more historic game in in Scotland and one that's that's kind of fallen now under the shadow of it of its younger offshoot if we can call it if we can call it that something that we're very much looking to uh, very much looking to change and uh, uh yeah with the current scotland team we've got a we've got a side that can certainly uh, can certainly do that with the big results that it's had over the last uh, over the last few while 
in terms of appreciating the, the history of the game and just the club culture and the ties of Scotland around the country, West Coast, East Coast, all the way up north, everywhere around the country, one of the things that a lot of people may remember from the 2015 World Cup was when the jerseys were designed. They had, almost in mosaic fashion, the names of all the cricket clubs in Scotland embedded in the jersey, which is a really nice touch. And I'm just curious, in terms of what you've researched and what you've come across firsthand through the club cricket scene, Penny Cook Cricket Club, you're a very proud member of Penny Cook Cricket Club. Oh, I am. <laughs> uh, what are some of the, the things that you love most about Scottish club cricket culture that make it so beloved locally and have that translated internationally in terms of seeing what we saw in 2015 in which the jerseys had that note, that kind of had to tribute from the national team to everybody else who makes up Scottish cricket? It's a really interesting question, actually, because the title of the first book, The Secret Game, was chosen very deliberately because it's almost like we cricket is a, a game that exists in the shadows in, in Scotland. It is, as we've said, hugely historic. The first recorded game we have is in, was played in 1785. The first cricket club was founded in 1820 slash 21, a little bit of kind of confusion around uh, around which date it actually is but Kelso Cricket Club is 200 years old. By last reckoning 17,000 people play cricket in Scotland. There are more famously more cricket clubs than there are rugby clubs in Scotland. You don't have to look very far on a, a weekend in Scotland to find evidence of cricket. Um, I live in, in Pennycook, which has a club. We're going to, into Edinburgh, which is about eight miles down the road. Uh, here, go through the Meadows, which is the, the big public parkland in the, middle of, in the middle of the city. You'll see two or three games of cricket taking place. It, it, it's a game that's embedded in Scottish society, but it's almost, uh, as, as we say, uh, something that exists in the shadows. You know, that um, there is this perception of cricket as as being somehow not Scottish, as being a, a slightly elitist English sort of game, which when you actually look into it, couldn't be further from the truth. And one of, to, to, to go back to your question, one of the things that, that was the big joy in writing this book was that I wanted to focus on some of the, 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 the big names, if you like, the people connected with, uh, with the game that, that uh, in Scotland that, people from outside might not have known about. So for example, I talk about W.G. Grace's first uh, appearances in Scotland, and there's a chapter about Donald Bradman, not the Manorfield 1948 thing, which would have been quite an easy thing to do, but his little known friendship with, uh, with A.K. Bell, who was a great uh, benefactor of cricket in, in Perthshire. And so we talk a little bit about that. So we've got the famous names in there. But what I really, really enjoyed looking at was the was the community clubs the clubs that are really at the heart of their communities Fruki in Fife for example little village in Fife famously won the the village cup uh, back in back in the mid 80s Meagle uh, as well in in Perthshire uh, these are clubs in what they describe to me as, as, as working class communities where the cricket club is at the heart of the village in so many ways you know it's a social hub as well as for the sport itself and it's it's about people 
the game of cricket in Scotland. Uh, and that was something that I really wanted to try to put across in the first book too, that we've got these famous feats and famous names and so on. But above all, cricket in Scotland is a, is a wonderful, socially cohesive thing. And I think that was the thing that I, that I enjoyed most of all when I was writing it. It's, you find these fascinating little, uh, little tangents and, you know, as I was saying on the commentary the other day, you find a thread and you pull it and it's amazing what unravels uh, at the end of it. Um, but it, it's that message, that central message that, that it doesn't have the front page publicity often, um, you know, England and Bangladesh wins accepted recently. Um, you know, it's not front and centre. It, it's not football. You know, an old firm story will trump a story about any other sport in Scotland, let alone cricket. But it's a game that's at the absolute core of community in, in Scotland. And uh, it should be it should be celebrated. And what, you know, I try to do in, in my work is, is to is to do that as much as I can to celebrate it, to tell these stories that um, that might otherwise go untold. One of the things you touched on there. The friendliness, the warmness, I've never felt like it is, quote, quote, an elite sport. I can understand why that, that stereotype might be slapped on, because that's generally how it is in a lot of places. Cricket is seen as a very high society, a high barrier to entry sport. You know, equipment is not cheap by any means, and it's not a case of just getting a football or a rugby ball where you just cost 10 pounds, 20 pounds, and that's all you need, and you can go play it anywhere. Cricket is a little bit different from that, but... In terms of the people, in Scotland anyway, I've never gotten the sense that it's this private school, hoity-toity, you've got to come from, from old money kind of thing. It's the, the people that you meet, and they're salt of the earth, and they're people that you don't get this impression that you're being looked down upon, or, or people are, are from the cricket community are looking down upon people from outside the cricket community. It's, it's a very welcoming environment, whether it's at the Grange or... Yeah, Clydesdale in Glasgow or in Air or in Aberdeen up at Manorfield or Stonywood Dice. Can't leave Stonywood Dice out. I don't include them. Uh, or Sterling. And, and you know, again, Sterling is, I think, back to when the women's qualifier was hosted. The players were all put up in the University of Sterling dorms on the campus there because it was during summer when the classes were all out of session. So they had the dorms and it wasn't a case of, they need to put them up in the Ritz-Carlton or any anything like that. If there is such a thing as a Ritz-Carlton in Sterling, if there was, I didn't find it driving by anywhere, Jake. But the point is, hey, the closest place, the most convenient place, University of Sterling dorms, why not have the players there? And they'll enjoy it just as much. There's, there's no reason not to. And get a, a chance to – the university is a big part of the, the city there, and there's a lot of other historical stuff uh, to do with – William Wallace and war battles and all that in and around Sterling. But um, it just feels like a very kind of community centric environment, whether that's anywhere up the coast, Dundee, up to Aberdeen, and then down in, in the main city centers. What to you is, I guess, your favorite memory, or maybe an initial memory when you first came up to Scotland? Because again, if people haven't figured it out by now, based on your accent, you're not originally from Scotland, came up during your university years. But what to you gives you the biggest sense of connection with the Scottish community in that regard? It's a really good question. I mean, just to, to go back to the very start of it, I mean, the, the whole elitist thing, it's not, a, it's not a Scottish problem per se, of course. You know, this is a, an issue 
very much uh, that, that English cricket faces too. I mean, there's the, the documentary that's being aired in the UK at the moment um, where Andrew Flintoff is looking to put together a, a team of, uh, of kind of local youths and things that have never had any experience of cricket before, but getting to push back against this elitist image. So it, it, it is very much something that's an issue that cricket has as a, as a whole. It's a, it's a sport that's lent itself very easily to quite lazy stereotyping, probably not helped by the image of, of whites and cucumber sandwiches and, and all of that kind of thing the vicar cycling past on the uh, you know in the, the village the village one so it yeah it, it it's this constant battle between stereotype and reality because as you say the, the the reality of it in in scotland is 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 very different it's a hugely inclusive sport it, it there's a real desire for it to become more inclusive for it to to fully embrace every aspect of society there is a, a a lot of work being done with that at the moment and um, I think that there's certainly a great desire within the game to 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 make that happen which is which is very good but yeah as you rightly point out I'm not uh, originally uh, originally from Scotland I was I was brought up in in the West Midlands in Wolverhampton is my my part of the world my granddad was a Scot so I always had a a connection with Scotland I remember holidays and and so on I remember him being very delighted when I I, uh, I got a place at Edinburgh University, um, and so I, I came up here in 1987, and, and have been here ever since. Um, but my arrival, I, I came as obviously a cricket fanatic, but knowing nothing about Scottish cricket, and that stayed pretty much the same for a good wee while after that, um, because... I say I saw people playing on the meadows and whatever, but there was no profile. I wasn't really reading about it in the newspapers. I wasn't seeing, um, you know, days before social media and all of that kind of thing. Of course, I wasn't seeing seeing clips to engage my interests and all of that, all of that kind of thing. But what what really drew me into the community was was my son wanting to start to play because he'd he'd always watched cricket on television with me and, and and so on and he wanted to to get involved with uh, with with cricket we live in Pennycook so we went to our local club uh, a few years ago now uh, and and Douglas started playing and and then they said to me do you want to play as well and I hadn't played since school and so I I got involved there too but was absolutely taken with this with this community um, where you you meet all sorts of people are your teammates. You know, it's it, the, the core is of the is of the local community. But then people are traveling in, say from Edinburgh, to play for the club and things as well. And then I discovered this incredible history. You know, you look at the gates as you walk into Pennycook, for example, and it's got eighteen forty four on the gate because that's the year the club was founded. I mean, it's mind blowing. And, and I remember thinking, why do I know nothing about this? There's a whole world of, of cricket, a whole cricketing story around a country that I know absolutely nothing about beyond the little bits I've seen, like, for example, the 1999 World Cup, which I remember watching, and then it will kind of drift away again. And so really, that, that was also part of the inspiration behind the secret game, actually, was that it was about looking at myself the, a fan like me who would have considered himself a reasonably knowledgeable person about cricket when I started but knowing nothing at all about the Scottish game and then discovering all these incredible connections and and stories within it it was aimed very much at at, um, at that man that might that might say to you you know uh, what they play cricket in Scotland which is the kind of question that you're often asked 
or anybody who's interested in the history of the game and all of that kind of thing. So, yeah, so I think those two things really drew me into the game, the community aspect of it, and then me as a kind of curious historical type interest person, uh, the history side of it too. Talk about the lack of visibility, cricket not really being front page and, and lack of kind of awareness in general amongst the average person in the community, whether they're a fan of sports or just a local Scotsman. And if you look through the history of the archives, I'm going on Cricket Archive right now. And if, if you look at Scotland matches and you talked about game going back in, into the 18th century um, and Scotland if, on the Cricket Archive, the first match they've got listed here, Scotland versus the All England 11 at Sparks Grounds in Edinburgh, May 7th, 1849. So you've got whatever's registered and recorded in Cricket Archive, it goes way back in the first Scotland match versus the MCC at Lords that's listed here is in July of 1865. And you go throughout the history of the first match, Scotland against the Australians, the touring Australian side, 1882 or 1880, excuse me, at, at the Grange in Edinburgh. You can go further and on. And you know, the gentleman of Philadelphia, great connection with the American cricket community, the gentleman of Philadelphia tours with people like John Bar King, that gentleman of Philadelphia associated with the first gentleman of Philadelphia tour uh, in which they came up against Scotland is in 1884. I've got it here, June 7th, 1884. So even though officially on on paper, the rivalry between USA and Scotland, the official USA and Scotland sides didn't really begin until 2004 at the Six Nations Challenge in the UAE. But the rivalry in terms of teams associated with Scotland goes back to 1884 and, and that with the USA. But then you've got, again, matches all throughout history. Ireland, Scotland, the Australians, touring Australians, all throughout the 30s, 40s, 50s. And then Scotland participating in things like the Benson and Hedges uh, Cup, the English domestic competition 70s and 80s all the way through the 90s nat west with the varying sponsors whether it was benson and hedges or nat west but they didn't really begin to get linked with icc events or kind of the european associates whether you want to include wales and netherlands or denmark or ireland in that in, in a formal sense the, the rivalry with ireland goes back more than 100 years but what would be classified as ICC events that didn't really begin until 1995, 1996, and then leading into that 1999 World Cup. So how much of that do you think impacted the lack of kind of awareness and visibility in terms of what would be considered the quote, quote, Scotland team in the same sense that Scotland places their own team in football, FIFA World Cup qualifying, as opposed to in the Olympics when it's, it's Great Britain that they're all representing alongside England and Wales. How much of that do you feel contributed to kind of the lack of awareness that exists in modern day where Scotland is a thriving associate? Yeah, hugely, I would say you're, you're absolutely right in that we have the, the history stretching right the way back of there being a, a representative side, if you like. Those, um, those very early games against the All England 11 and the United All England 11 and all the various offshoots that came up, the touring celebrity sides, if you like, the, the kind of Harlem Globetrotters of their day. Um, they played representative sides, often 22 players, who 
would call themselves Scotland or gentlemen of Scotland or, or something, but it wasn't a representative side in the in the sense that we would think of it today in, in terms of selection and all that kind of thing. It was that be uh, maybe centered around a club, perhaps with a few ringers brought in from elsewhere. But you're right in terms of the the national side, the the history of it as a, as a standalone entity as we know it now it does begin in, in 95 with the split from the that would have been the tccb uh, i guess then at that time when it's standing in its own right so so prior to that um scotland's matches against any touring sides who would who would come up um would be unofficial games you know that makes it a pretty hard sell uh to put it on the same kind of level as as the national football team or the rugby side or, or, or whatever it would be. So it is something that um, that has only started, as we say, relatively recently, the, the, the awareness. And then there's that age-old problem of associate cricket, which is of the lack of fixtures. I mean, it, the, the contrast with rugby is an interesting one because, you know, we talked right at the top of this about the the perceptions of, of elitism and private school education and all that kind of thing with cricket well you know look at rugby you can't get more private school than a, a sport named after one of them but rugby isn't treated the same way or viewed the same way at all because even when the national side isn't doing particularly well it still has those regular fixtures it's still got the six nations every year it's playing it's playing Ireland, it's playing Wales, and importantly, playing England every year. So, and then everything else that goes around that. Well, um, and I would argue, just to cut in there, most recently, they're playing Argentina. Argentina yes. is a country that not until maybe 2007, I believe it was, when they, Argentina went on this somewhat magical run to the semifinals of the Rugby World Cup. Argentina was kind of looked down upon as, in the kind of rugby circumstances, as a lesser than nation. They get to the World Cup semifinal in 2007. And instead of it being treated in a similar situation to what Kenya experienced when they made the Cricket World Cup in 2003 and they got very little support and they were allowed to kind of wither away and fall back to where they are now in the Challenge League, which is shocking considering at one time they had, quote, quote, permanent ODI status, which is now obviously not permanent. <laughs> they don't have ODI status anymore. But Argentina, you look at what's transpired with them in the last 15 years on rugby and the fact that they were given support by the rugby community at international level. And now they changed what was the tri-nations in the Southern Hemisphere that used to be just Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. And now they've been included as a fourth team in that conglomerate to have their own event. But then the fact that they're also touring other countries or having other countries come and tour there. And Scotland, I believe Argentina beat them in, in two out of three tests. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, it sort of takes us to... The whole recent events with, in cricketing terms, with 10-team World Cup and all that kind of thing, the contraction of the game. I, I've, I've never, I mean, I was pretty vocal about it at the time, as, as, as you were too, and, and, and others, never been able to get my head around why cricket wants to effectively deliver the, the same menu over and over again, just repeat itself constantly, you know, more series more fixtures more tournaments between the same small group of teams why are they not looking to have a story like argentina or a story like japan in the in the world cup you know when they beat south africa and then look what they did next time it's great for the game it gets the game onto the front pages in this country japan south africa when that game took place 
that was on the front page here. There was a photo. There were photographs of Japan celebrating their win over South Africa in the in the World Cup. It was a had a huge global reach, and I've never understood the strategy of why of why cricket doesn't want to do that. Doesn't want to do everything it possibly can to to encourage that. Surely, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, if it's about generating revenue, how do you generate revenue? You want more people playing. How do you want more people playing? You encourage them to play by giving them a dog in the fight, you know, getting them involved, getting uh, all of the, the encouragement with development and so on, but also of the national team, giving them fixtures, giving them an opportunity in, in World Cups to, uh, to play, to have a chance of, of upsets or developing on that world stage, getting people uh, to invest in that tournament from a from a, a personal perspective is is the way forward and it's um yeah been one of the great frustrations as to why we we've missed out on that i know that things are looking to change now and looking to expand a little more but that's a chunk of time that we've we've lost there i think that we've we've lost ground on uh, on other sports um that have capitalized and as you say argentina is a, a prime example of that but again just more than 150 200 years of history in scotland and the fact that 1995 was when the split happened. I mean, do you feel that there is still an appreciation, not necessarily within Scotland, obviously one of the things I love most about Scotland is the players, their cap numbers. The cap numbers are, are closing in on now 700. They recognize everybody who has played for Scotland well before 1995. The cap numbers don't start at 1995 and they're limited to just ODIs and, and T20Is and Intercontinental Cup. The entire history of the game is, is celebrated in, within Scotland, by Scotland. And I wish USA would do that because at the moment, the cap numbers are, are kind of just recognized only from 2004, the Champions Trophy, the two matches they played in now, the modern rebirth of the ODI era of USA cricket in 2019. And then again, the same thing with the T20Is. I have my own database that I keep track of all the players who have played for USA going back to 1975. 1979 in the ICC trophy events but even that is probably a bit of a weak effort because it, it really doesn't reflect in all the things I have in my database John Barking is not included as a, a player for USA in my historical database yeah he's playing gentleman in Philadelphia um it was under a different title but there's a huge chunk of of U.S. cricket history that doesn't really get recognized in a proper way and I'm just curious how much of that pre-1995 history do you feel gets neglected or, or what do you feel would be the most optimal way to celebrate that history on a global scene beyond what Scotland currently does, which again, I think is a fantastic thing where they have the cap numbers. Like I said, it's up to, into the 670s, 680s at the moment into the modern players to, to let people know that this history is very, very rich and very, very deep. Yeah, I agree uh, agree totally it is really important to recognize as as scotland do what has gone before you know the history doesn't just start in in 95 it does in terms of the the national side as a a separate entity and one that was going towards odi status and all the kind of things it couldn't have done before qualifying for world cups in its own right for example but you don't just get there you know you don't just start there it's it's everything that has gone every step of the journey on the way and, and reflecting the caps is very important um there's also the cricket scotland hall of fame uh which recognizes the the, the great players of the past and present so the inductees uh, into that um so you know the great names like like james Aitchison, 
for example, like Leslie Balfour Melville, more recent players like Paul Hoffman, for example, Craig Wright's current assistant coach. So, yeah, it's very important that that history is uh, is recognised. You're right. And yeah, and, and it is about trying to trying to get it out there, trying to tell the stories to raise the the awareness uh, of what people people have, you know, in, in, in all the perceptions that people have of the of the sports, very disposable society with social media, with very, very slick presentation. Um, it's easy to overlook history uh, sometimes, but certainly the the incredible work of people like Neil Leach, Cricket Scotland historian, Cammy Munro, who runs uh, the, the, the kind of cricket his, Scottish cricket history uh, Twitter page, Scottish cricket past, present and future. It's really special. It's really it's really interesting uh, as well. I think for students of cricket in general, not just uh, Scottish cricket, to to learn about these these people, learn about these stories. One of the things you touched on there, Leslie Balfour Melville, who I know you write about in the Secret Game. Leslie Balfour Melville was the captain of the Scotland team when they played against the gentlemen of Philadelphia, going back to the eighteen. 18- 80s. They played in 1884, 1889, and then again in 1903. And on that occasion, the last match, it was Alexander Cairns, who was the captain. But USA's cricket history linking to Scottish cricket history going back to 1884, you can pinpoint the first tour match by the gentleman of Philadelphia going to the Grange. And now I have a greater appreciation for the Grange, Jake. It's such a wonderful place in modern history, but American cricket history has its links going back more than a century to the Grange with the gentlemen of Philadelphia touring there. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about this now, but but first, Leslie Balfour Melville is somebody who is president of the Scottish Cricket Union, president of the Scottish Rugby Union, going back to the late 1890s and into the 1900s. And again, you, you write about him in The Secret Game. So what is something new and unique that you discovered upon your research and writing the book that opened your eyes about his place in the history of not just Scottish cricket, but cricket in general. Uh, and Scottish sports as, as well. I mean, he was a, a, a true all-rounder, a remarkable uh, guy in, 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 in every sense of the, world, uh, the word. I mean, as we say, terrific uh, cricketer, but he was a, he was a tennis champion. He won the Scottish Amateur Golf Championships at um, St Andrews. Uh, I think he was. I think he had a long jump uh, record at one point as well. He was a he was a runner. Um, just a true, a truly remarkable, remarkable sportsman, and also captained uh, Scotland to victory over Australia. In uh, now I'm going on memory here, 1882. I think that game would have been at the Grange. Um, scored uh, scored 60 odd won the game with with a shot out of the ground over the wall and into the adjacent Edinburgh Academy ground at Rayburn Place uh, which is now the now the rugby ground just next to um, next to the cricket ground if you know your geography of, uh, of, of the Grange. For anybody who's, who's watching seen a game from the pavilion end if you're at the pavilion and it's to the left side of the ground that's where the rugby fields are the right side there's the tennis courts the left side from the pavilion, and that's where the rugby fields are. Yeah, because traditionally, Raven Place was where Edinburgh Academy, which is where Balfour Melville went to school, uh, that's where they had their 
their cricket ground uh, and then uh, Grange Cricket Club, which had originally started in grounds on uh, now Street in Edinburgh. The name has completely gone out of my head, but at Haymarket anyway, they had grounds at Haymarket, had to move and eventually bought bought some land uh, in around 1870, 1872, something like that. Uh, bought some farmland next to the Edinburgh Academy grounds. Um, built the pavilion, which still stands. It's spent the princely sum of seven hundred pounds building that pavilion, uh, and have been have been there have been there ever since. Reputedly, the the, the scene of um, of W. G. Grace's biggest hit of his uh, of his career. I don't know if that was a um, a kind of one of those apocryphal stories that are associated with Grace or not. But yeah, I mean the uh, probably what you would describe as the home of, of Scottish cricket, the home of the international side at the moment, uh, at the moment anyhow. And fantastic also this year to see that the women's team are going to be playing their first matches there. They've, um, they've got some games coming up against Fairbreak team that's coming at the um, sort of end part of August. And that will be actually the women's side's first ever games um at the at the grange which is great 1903 again the gentlemen of philadelphia the third time that they played scotland of those visits that started in the 1880s this was the first appearance of john bart king he came in at number four scored 14 nelson graves scored a century at the top for gentlemen of philadelphia 107 in a total of 302 and then more famously, John Barking, master of swing bowling, came out in the reply, opened the bowling six for 49 in 30 overs with 10 maidens. What else can you tell fans, American fans or any other fans watching, listening to this about the place of the gentlemen of Philadelphia in the, in the context of tours to Scotland and how they matched up compared to the Australian sides that toured and the, the all-star England teams that you talked about coming around and Ireland. Where does the gentleman of Philadelphia, where do they fit into the scheme of how teams matched up against Scotland in that era of history and in particular John Bart King? You're going outside my my specific knowledge a little bit, <laughs> I have to say, with, with John Bart King and the gentleman of Philadelphia specifically. But what a lot of people don't really maybe understand about cricket in that in that era was that it was a far more global game uh, than perhaps you might you might think. In that there were these these touring sides uh, who would cross the Atlantic. In the case of the gentleman of Philadelphia, and of course it went. The other way, the the uh, All England eleven or United All England eleven to the US in a eighteen fifty seven fifty eight something like that, I think, uh, which you know had a had a great uh, impact on the development of of cricket in the USA, uh, which was then stalled by civil war and um, onset of and the popularity of baseball that kind of overtook it and it never. Cricket never quite regained its um, its previous popularity, um, but uh, yeah, these these touring sides would um, really began the concept began in the eighteen forties with with William Clark and the and the All England Eleven. They would travel the country, um, travel England up into into Scotland, over to Ireland, effectively a team of celebrity players who would would go and take on take on all comers. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, as, as I say, a, a very global um, concept, I suppose, in, in the way that, that cricket was in those, in those early days. 
the fact of history, the players who were coming through, these were not small fries. You talked about WG Grace before coming up to Scotland and having the, what is, according to legend, the, the biggest hit ever at, at the Grange, at Rayburn Place. And one of the other names that comes up in your book, Douglas Jardine, the famous captain in the Bodyline series, uh, has got some links to Scottish cricket history that you spend a chapter talking about Douglas Jardine in the secret game. What is his role in Scottish cricket history that in your eyes makes his story even more unique aside from everything that unfolded in the course of the Bodyline series? Yeah, he was a, a man with very strong attachments to Scotland. He's not a member of the Cricket Scotland Hall of Fame, just by virtue of the fact that he never actually played for Scotland. There were reasons um, for that. He was selected, he was asked to play and, and, and turned it down in the, the period immediately after he, he had stepped away from, from, from England uh, around about, um, you know, obviously the, the Bodyline Tour in 1932-33, and then Australia were then going to tour uh, the following year tour England 1934 and Jardine and, and Larwood were were seen as two people that it was best to have off the scene and were quietly moved to the side and it was something that that Jardine I think never really got over in cricketing terms um, he didn't really play after that very much I think his heart was was no longer in it and certainly when it, it comes to to bodyline it was it's often been painted as Jardine as this sort of um, this lone figure developing this tactic uh, in isolation and uh, this personal vendetta against Bradman and looking to pepper the Australian batters and all of that kind of thing. But um, but Jardine and others had always uh, had always said no that the MCC at the time knew exactly what what the plan was. You know, Plum Warner, who was the tour manager. Um, it's inconceivable that he wouldn't have known what the what the tactics were going to be and approve them, presumably. But yes, so Jardine was born in Bombay, uh, but to to Scottish parents. His father went to Fettis College, which is the the big school just along from the Grange, um, which is a very uh, spectacular building. It looks uh, it looks a little like the nickname and uh, amongst the locals is Disney World it looks uh it's it's very like that kind of building with a huge spire in the middle so uh he was uh he was a cricketer at Fettis College but say uh D uh, Jardine born in Bombay his uh his parents were were working over there as was the uh, certainly not uncommon at the at the time uh, but he always considered himself to be to be a Scot he spent his early years in St Andrews um, in between going to going up and down to school staying with his aunt Kitty uh, on the east coast of Scotland and yeah what I really enjoyed um, when I was writing The Secret Game is is that I, I got to chat to John McCabe and unfortunately um, Douglas Jardine's eldest daughter Fiona Jardine uh, passed away uh, a few years ago and I actually spoke to his youngest daughter, Iona, on the phone and, and just, you know, ask about, uh, you know, insights and, and all that kind of thing. And it was a really sad conversation because she said, I'm, I'm ever so sorry, I, I can't help because I have no memories. I have no memories of my father at all, which 
which was which was really sad. He died in the in the 1950s when she was obviously very very young. And my impression from what I've read elsewhere was that was that Jardine's widow was was absolutely bereft at his at his loss and didn't really talk about it at all very much. Um, but Fiennec was was certainly one uh, that had very strong opinions on her father's treatment and and so on. And and I spoke to John McCabe, who was Fiennec's partner. Went out and had a really pleasant morning out chatting to to him and talking about her reminiscences and and, and things which were included in the book. And, um, and one thing, the connection with Bodyline that um, that I found really really interesting. I mean, there was all of the talk about the the Harlequin cap that Jardine wore, which was his his Oxford cap, um, rather than the official NTC tour cap. Um, he would take the field in this. And would get absolute pelters from the from the barrackers who saw this as just the the symbol of elitism and the symbol of him looking down on us and and all of these kinds of things. So he, he would be the focus of some really ferocious barracking uh, through the through the day. And um, John McCabe told me that that Fiennac said that that was quite deliberate. He knew exactly what he was doing by wearing that cap that it was all about he would become the focus taking the taking the focus away from his bowlers and it kind of um it matched up nicely because in the the, the last game of the tour apparently Jardine came out in his MCC cap and the rest of the team all appeared in various multicolored caps of different different sorts so it was it was um the sort of twinkle in in his eye uh, I found really, really interesting uh, in, in contrast to this, this very austere image that he, uh, that he projects, that he, that, he, that he had. But he spent a lot of time in Scotland in his, in his later life. Uh, his, his ashes are, are scattered on a hilltop in Highland Perthshire. And it was nice to hear uh, that he used to go down and watch Bred Alban Cricket Club. Uh, he would often, when he was walking, go down and uh, and see what was happening at Predalban in in Aberfeldy in Highland Persia um and yeah keep keep in touch with the with the game that way the stars and stripes cricket podcast is presented by dream cricket dream cricket store can help you fill up all of your cricket kit requirements anything you need bats helmets gloves pads jerseys and more go to dreamcricketstore.com now and get 15% off your first order Dream Cricket Store also offers free shipping on all orders over $200. Again, go to www.dreamcricketstore.com to take advantage of that great offer today. This episode of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket is also sponsored by Musa Cricket Stadium, the first turf wicket facility in the state of Texas, and now the first ODI accredited venue in the Lone Star State, located at 5515 McKeever Road, County Road 100 in Pearland. Five miles off the Bailey Road exit from State Route 288, a half hour south of downtown Houston, Musa Cricket Stadium includes fully enclosed locker rooms and change rooms, plus shower facilities after a day's play, as well as outdoor nets for all your training needs. Musa also has two nursery grounds on the north side of the stadium boundary available for use. For more information, visit www.musastadium.com. That's M-O-O-S-A stadium.com. Musa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. The Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast is also sponsored by Crickbuster. Based in Florida, Crickbuster is an ICC-designated official travel agent 
for the 2022 ICC Men's T20 World Cup in Australia. If you're a cricket fan living in the USA and you need match tickets, flights, hotels, stadium tours, or want to organize other sightseeing activities down under this October, Crickbuster is a one-stop shop for all of your touring needs. Visit www.crickbuster.com to begin planning your trip today. And now back to the episode. I want to fast forward to playing with teeth. And that's the more modern history of, of Scotland's men's team in particular. The book starts off with a chapter about the 2013 T20 World Cup qualifier in the UAE, in which they lost a playoff match to the Netherlands. Netherlands beats Scotland by eight wickets in a qualifying playoff match. And then everybody remembers Netherlands going on to the T20 World Cup and springing that incredibly memorable win over Ireland where they had that audacious chase led by Peter Boren and Tom Cooper to, to beat Ireland at Sylhead to take away what a spot that looked like it was set to be Ireland's going into the, the main draw. But if you, if you rewind, how did they get there? They beat Scotland by eight wickets in the qualifier in the UAE playoff match. Richie Barrington and Cal McLeod were opening the batting at that point in time in the T20 side, and they both get dismissed for no run. So it's two for one, seven balls into the match. Barrington out, second ball. First run came from a wide. So they had a poor, poor run. And historically, they had performed poorly in these qualifiers that were always in the UAE. The 2010, 2012, 2013 T20 World Cup qualifiers were always held in the UAE. And regardless of where the tournament itself was going to be held, the T20 World Cup itself was going to be held. You had to make it out of the qualifier in the UAE. 2010 tournament was in the West Indies. 2012, it was in Sri Lanka. 2014, it was in Bangladesh. But if I if I roll back further, and, and that sets up the transition, you're going to start into chapter two when Grant Bradburn arrives on the scene. And the, the title, Playing with Teeth, comes from a quote by Grant Bradburn about the approach he wants the players to take and their attitude on the field and how that transforms their overall mentality and their overall approach into creating this attacking form of cricket, which has been so successful over the last seven, eight years. But if I think back further, when I look at Scotland teams over the years in those qualifiers, I always point out to people, and not not just because I'm, I'm covering USA or I'm, I'm American or whatever excuse you want to make, USA beat Scotland in 2010 and in 2012. And in my mind, neither match was close. They beat Scotland in the 2010 qualifier. Officially, it was by six wickets, but they lost three quick wickets when they were within, I think, 10 runs of the target. It wasn't even remotely close that game. And then in 2012, at the qualifier again in the UAE, they played at the ICC Academy and USA chased a target of 162 with, with two balls to spare, a ball to spare, actually. But Jan Stander top scored 58, uh, 31 balls. Kyle Kutzer was the captain at the time. You had a lot of the same guys. And this is what's so remarkable. Again, Richie Barrington, Kyle McLeod opening the batting. Preston Mumson came in at three. Kyle Kutzer was listed at number five. 19 off 24 balls for Kyle Kutzer at number five against USA. Safian Sharif. Number six on that match, Fraser Watts at number seven. Craig Wallace, who's been in and out of the team, but has been around Scottish cricket for a long time. Majid Hawk, Monib Iqbal. So at least half those guys are players who really formed the core of the squad that was successful under Grant Bradburn. And I remember watching those Scotland teams in 2010 and 2012 and to a lesser extent in 2013. And I remember being completely unimpressed 
I thought they were dull. I thought they were boring. I thought, how are these guys considered an elite associate team? USA didn't have ODI status at the time and both matches. I, again, I felt USA dominated both matches for huge chunks of the game. And it puzzled me. How are these guys considered an elite ODI status associate? Because they, they, they don't look like they have players that are really make you lose sleep at night. And yet these same players, again, coming out of 2013, that qualifier, more or less the same guys go, go through again the players that were in the 2013 side a year later. And, and again, they lost it to the Netherlands. Essentially, they were knocked out of contention for a, a spot in the World Cup by the Netherlands two years in a row. 2012, they lost a playoff match to the Netherlands. They lost by three wickets. They couldn't defend a total of 166. And then a year later, they lose to the, to the Netherlands. And I just thought, this is not a good team. And yet again, those same players are the ones who were world record-setting players when Grant Bradburn came on the scene. Cal McLeod, yeah. Kyle Kutzer, Preston Mumson was ICC Associate Player of the Year before he retired. Safian Sharif, now the all-time leading wicket-taker for Scotland in, in limited overs cricket, ODI cricket. Michael Leesk arrived. He, he came onto the scene not long after around there. He was in that uh, match that they lost to the Netherlands in 2013. He batted number four, 58 off 46 balls. So a lot of people more prominently associate Michael East with his ODI debut when he scored that very brisk 40-odd against England up at Aberdeen. But they don't really remember the, the match he played in the 2013 T20 World Cup qualifier where he showed he's got a lot of promise as an all-rounder. Um, Matthew Cross was in that match in 2013. So you had the pieces in place on paper, but they weren't performing. So take us through the, the genesis of this book, Playing With Teeth. You set the scene with the failure in 2013, and then... The, the transition to, to 2014. So just, if you can take us through kind of the atmosphere and the mood of what Scotland's mentality was like at the time and how you feel, if you're able to kind of gauge from anybody you talk to inside or outside of Scotland, what you feel the perception of the perception was of Scotland, not just within Scotland, but outside of Scotland before Grant Bradburn arrived and developed this playing with teeth mentality. Yeah. I think you've summarized it really, really well there. And you've summarized the core message of the book there too, in that I was really fascinated by this idea of, of talent versus mindset. We often hear, you know, cricket is a game played in the head so much. And as you rightly said, the core group of players that we see in those tournaments you've mentioned are very much part of the squad as it, as it still is. And so it's how did that transformation occur? And that was the question I, I really wanted to, to unpick, having reported on it in real time, to really sort of go behind it and see if we could, we could unpick it uh, a little more. Gary Heatley, my, my co-writer, obviously involved in this too. I think it was Ben Crenshaw, a golfer, had said that he was five inches away from becoming an outstanding golfer, and that's the distance between his left ear and his right. Um, and so it was... What changes in mindset, what changes in approach do you need? Because you don't get more talented. You know, you can, okay, you can work on a particular shot, you can work on a particular ball or whatever it may be, but your, your core talent is the same. You know, you can work on it to make the most of it, but to make the big change, it's got to come from, from mindset. And as you say, the book actually begins in a time of optimism in that there had been the year before change in the eligibility rules by the ICC, which meant that players 
previously, because there's no such thing as a Scottish passport, to be qualified to play for Scotland, you had to either live in Scotland for a certain amount of time or have been born in Scotland. You couldn't say if you had a Scottish mother qualify. And that was changed in 2012. Um, and so it brought into the side an influx of, of county players, lots of experience of first class and list day cricket. So people like Matt Machen, um, Rob Taylor, Ian Woodlaw and so on came into the squad. So there was that real injection of, of fresh blood, if you like, and, and of good quality players. And it was also the first year that the World T20, as it was then, qualifier was revamped. So there were going to be, coming from the qualifier, uh, six teams were going to go forward now for the first time. So to go into this new first round structure, so there's still a hurdle to cross um, to get into the, the, the final part of the, uh, of the tournament, but still massive opportunity to get on the stage with the, with the big boys again. And then it turned into this, well, what Wisdom describes as the, the Anus Cerebralis, when everything that, that could have gone wrong pretty much in that tournament went wrong. You know, there was an opening day loss to Bermuda, uh, followed up by a loss to Afghanistan. So two, two losses in two days already up against it. And Scotland were, were trying to get back and, and you know, good win against um, Nepal was then negated by an absolute thumping from Kenya. So it was basically nip and tuck all the time. There was a, a typically Scottish incident that happened uh, against Denmark when there was a miscalculation in the runs re required. Um, Scotland thinking that they had uh, that they had I think only seven runs to defend in the last over when in actual fact they had something like 17 runs to defend in the last over I can't remember the exact figures of something like that um, and so missed out to qualification to the the top playoffs which give you a few more bites of the cherry by something like 0.036 of a run it was something ridiculous so everything had kind of gone wrong and then against the Netherlands had got into the halfway point after a 50 from Matt Machen and, as you, as you say, an absolute blazing innings from Michael Leesk, looked like had put Scotland in the, in the driving seat. And then Wesley Baracy comes out and just takes it away from them with plenty to spare. So there was a real sense of despondency after that result, you know, having gone in with such high hopes at the start of the year and it has all gone wrong. And it left Scottish cricket in a position where there was another qualifier starting a month or month or two uh, later in um, New Zealand for the 50 over World Cup, where if Scotland weren't going to qualify from that much more difficult tournament to qualify from only two teams going through, uh, as opposed to the six that we would just seen uh, going through to the World Cup in 2015. It was going to likely mean the loss of uh, high performance funding from ICC. It put central contracts on, on the line. It put potential redundancies in the organization on the line. A huge amount of pressure was piled on uh, to the team that was already under pressure, having performed in the way it did in, uh, in the UAE. The coach, Pete Steindl, moved on. Craig Wright and Paul Collingwood came in, uh, having already been assistant coaches for that uh, for that T20 qualifier. Really started 
what you could describe as phase one, I suppose, of, of Scotland's transformation. They focused very much on the mental side of things, on confronting what was in front of them. I think it was Preston Momsen had said, you know, in the past, we would sometimes shy away from things like that, try not to think about it, you know, the pressure that was on us. And, you know, Craig Wright said it was very important that we were absolutely open about what, what was at stake here and what we needed to do. Paul Collingwood's approach was very much to, as, as he put it, bring relaxation into the environment. He said, you know, I played against Scotland many times and, and to answer the other part of your question you know I, and my opinion of of scotland wasn't that wasn't that high it was um a team that was that was brittle that was that you never felt that you were going to really be challenged by he said that wasn't the case with ireland he said you always felt with ireland that you beat them but you were in for a game so with scotland i never really felt that but he said he came along to to training and saw he said, I mean, he used the word to me. I was I was amazed by the skill level that I saw. You know, he saw that it was an incredibly talented group of players, but that somehow when they were getting onto the big stage, something was restricting them. Um, that whether it be their own approach, their their nervousness, their fear of getting it, whatever it would have been. And so he said it was all about all about trying to to get the players just to relax a little more, to enjoy it a bit more. So there's a lot of focus on trying to enjoy the whole experience, which is something that Grant Bradburn then subsequently is very much part of his approach to when, when he came in. Of course, it's really easy to say that. Uh, oh, you know, guys, relax. Uh, when, you're, when your career isn't at stake and your livelihood isn't at stake, because again, Collingwood said to me again that it was a real eye-opener coming in and, and it's not just about it sticks in my head you know it's not just about playing and enjoying cricket it's it's about your livelihood it's um there's an awful lot at stake in in all of these uh in all of these tournaments and scotland lost the first game of that qualifier in in new zealand to hong kong up against it again but really came back with a sense of we have nothing to lose here and put down a an enormous marker in, in getting seven consecutive wins to not only qualify but win the tournament well, not just that. Kyle Kutzer was out of the tournament. He gets injured. Say, absolutely, he gets absolutely. injured early. Yeah, yeah. Preston yeah. Momsen has the tournament of his life. But you look at the Scotland team now. Two spots that can be taken, and they they lose at the time he was their captain and best player conceivably. So they suffer that blow early in the tournament, and yet with all this pressure and all the things you discussed, they reel off seven straight wins. What is the most remarkable part about that? sequence of events for you in your eyes and how they were able to rally back it's totally that i mean preston said to me you know to lose kyle was an enormous blow he was our best batsman preston said and it was almost that we'd taken a step forward they'd they'd won their their second match and then lost kyle so it was like almost two steps back it was you know we're being knocked back but he said that that galvanized the team it, it made them even more determined it was all or nothing you know everything is on the line here and it brought the team together in uh, a more cohesive way, probably, you know, that kind of shared uh, shared sense of, of being up against it, of challenge. And again, it was all about confronting and, and talking about the challenge that was ahead. It was about not hiding away from it. As Collingwood said to me, um, th there's no point, you know, after you've lost a game and everyone 
shouting each other and then stomping off to their rooms to brood about it because you've got the rest of the tournament to play you know it's a game and we can it's a game it's a game lost but we can still do this and that that was a an attitude that maintained or that, that kept going all the way through the tournament it was something that that was missing in 2013 in the T20 qualifier i think it became almost a slight kind of bunker mentality uh, I, th I think you know Craig Wright said to me that the that the biggest issue in that tournament was confidence you know that that we had the talent we certainly had the players who could have seen us through that tournament with with plenty to to spare six spots available but it was just a lack of confidence it was coming in off a really desperate run where the the, the only victories that that Scotland had had in 2013 was a was a five match series against Kenya um, they'd lost all of the CB40 uh, matches that they played that year to be fair they'd had some pretty tough opponents in that they played a five-match series um, against Afghanistan in the UAE uh, where they'd been turned over they'd lost three games to Ireland they'd lost to Australia A they'd lost ODIs to Pakistan and, and Australia so it's not exactly games that you would expect Scotland is going to be winning all these matches by any means but um, it just as, as winning becomes a habit, losing becomes a habit too. And it was the, the, the dent to the, to the confidence that it didn't take too much to uncover in 2013. Whereas in 2014, it was turned and used as motivation almost to, to turn it round. And, uh, and they did so in emphatic style. And it was the end of, of phase one of the story, as, as, as Preston put it. And then the arrival of, of Grant in April 2014 was very much the start of um, the start of phase two. It was interesting because for Grant, I think the fundamental question that he that he came in with was, you know, well, where does this team see itself going? You know, it had found its place at the top table of associate cricket again uh, by the performance in the in in the New Zealand qualifier. So it had found that that place, that sort of top of the tree, if you like, of the of, of the associate teams, barring perhaps Ireland and Afghanistan at that time. But uh, Grant said to me that the first game he saw Scotland play was that England game that you mentioned uh, up at Manorfield, where uh, Michael Leask scored that incredible 42 off 16, 16 balls. And... Grant was there as an observer. It was before he'd officially taken over. And I remember him saying that what had really struck him after the game was how elated everybody was. He went into the dressing room to sort of introduce himself again and say, you know, give, give a few thoughts. But he said that there was a real feeling of elation that, that England had been given a, a bit of a bloody nose, had been given a bit of a scare. He said, whereas in reality, at the end, the game hadn't come anywhere close to, be, to being won. But he said what, what had struck him was two things. First of all, was we've got to change this mindset. We've got to say that this, isn't, that this isn't enough, that this isn't good enough. It's not a question of job done if you, if you come close but don't get over the line. So, but the second thing that struck him was, by me, there is the talent here to do it. And we said that, that Michael Leask not only matched England with his skill, he very nearly took the game away from them. And he said, and that's what I that's what I said to the players. I went in and said, you know, look, it's not in the talent, it's in the thinking. And that's what we're what we're going to be looking to looking to change. Now, you and your co-author, Gary Heatley, 
split the book up into three sections. The first section, again, it talks about a lot of the stuff that you have discussed just now with not just the T20 World Cup qualifier in 2014, but then the World Cup qualifier in New Zealand a couple months later. And again, just, just to touch on the remarkable thing about that, they get knocked out by the Netherlands in the T20 World Cup qualifier. Netherlands goes to the T20 World Cup in Bangladesh, beats Ireland. But again, Scotland, 50 over format, months later in New Zealand. Netherlands doesn't even finish in the ODI slots. There were four ODI slots. So two teams went to the 50 World Cup, four slots for ODI teams. Netherlands didn't even finish in, in that group. They didn't make the Super 6 stage because they had this catastrophic loss to Kenya. And so you have two teams kind of in the same sphere of competitiveness, having two very contrasting uh, results that dramatically changed the fortunes of, of both teams over the course of the next several years. And it took the Netherlands until 2018 and 2017 to get back that ODI status through the World Cricket League Championship and then being part of the Super League. But so it starts in 2013 at the qualifier, goes until the victory over Hong Kong in the T20 World Cup in 2016, that finally Scotland gets the monkey off their back in that event. That's section one. That's where you've chosen to end it. And then section two begins. This is quite fascinating for me. In 2017, not with victory over Zimbabwe, but rolling back a little bit earlier to the Desert T20, which was a great event. I got to go and cover it in person. And I really wish it was not just a one-off. It was one of the, the most enjoyable events I ever got to cover. Afghanistan won the final. They beat Ireland in the final. But Scotland, the mentality, you could see the approach was starting to change in that event. And then in the second chapter of this second section of the book, you go into the match at Kent in Beckenham, where they play against Sri Lanka. This was a Sri Lanka warm-up match before the, the Champions Trophy. And that was, again, a pivotal moment in the course of recent history of Scotland's transformation into becoming an elite team capable of beating. And everybody knows about the victories over Zimbabwe. Everybody knows about the victories over England. Not everybody really recognizes or, or gives a lot of credit to the victory over Sri Lanka simply because it was technically an unofficial match, didn't have ODI status. It was a quote-unquote warm-up match. And so people maybe on the Sri Lanka side of things can poo-poo it and say, oh, well, it wasn't really an official match. That's not how Scotland treated it. And that was a huge moment in their transformation. And then you you deal with, in the final section, the most recent events going into Bangladesh and the T20 World Cup, the victory over Bangladesh in the opening round, going with Chris Greaves and, and what they did there and, and going into the main draw of the World Cup. But, you know, whether it's things like this pivotal meeting in Dundee, this this famous team meeting in Scotland circles, this meeting that was in Dundee wasn't a match. It was just a team meeting where they had this very important moment in, in terms of, again, the, the mental approach, the transformation, what the ideas and goals were that they wanted to have in mind that Grant Bradburn uh, set for them. All these things you got to experience in real time. And this is the, the overarching question I want to ask. Compared to the first book, when you're, you're writing and researching The Secret Game and you're dealing with people who you're trying to find people who are still alive or people who have secondhand knowledge of these events that you can tap into and call upon and just do your own research to try and discover things through the archives. Very different in, ter in terms of how you approach writing Playing With Teeth because you live through everything in real time. So whether it was the stuff you talked about in the course of that 2013 to 2016 sequence or what happened in Dundee with the team meeting of the Desert T20 or the match against Sri Lanka. You're living through all these things in real time, but I'm curious, is there anything along the course of these things that through subsequent interviews 
or other research that you came across that was the most incredible nugget or piece of insight that you were able to obtain that the average person who is on the outside would never have been able to appreciate because they didn't experience it firsthand themselves? That is a really good question. I think that the thing that that struck me most that hadn't at the time uh, was the fact that this wasn't a smooth road. When you speak to a sports team or coach or to players after a game or whatever it will be, you get a summary. You get a summary of what has happened. Not just but, that, it's often very sanitized. It's very yes, yes yeah. that's 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 the word. That's a good word. You get a very you get a very sanitized story of where we are. But the players and and indeed Grant were really, really open about the challenges that that they faced here because of course it's not just it's something like there's a major change it's not just about uh oh hey we woke up one morning and we decided hey let's be braver and so then we did and look what happened you watched uh, that you watched the disney movie you watched brave you got inspired by the, the, the kelly mcdonald character yeah. with her scottish accent and it was let's do this let's no. be brave let's be brave like <laughs> the, the daughter and, and trying to get her mama bear to transform back into uh a real mama through the, the magic spell being broken. But but it was the insights from the players in the, the challenges that they that they were faced. Um, because Grant came in and same before with that, you know, the little anecdote about the about the England game, he was looking to ask questions and he's looking to get players to ask questions of themselves all the time. I use as, as one example of that, Carl. Kutzer at the at the 2015 World Cup. Carl went in with a really good ODI record, and then Scotland are playing England. Okay, World Cup stage, absolutely massive occasion. Kyle said he uh, wanted to. Um, he'd had some run-ins with Jimmy Anderson over the years, and and wanted to take him down. He said so. He said he was really went for it. Was really he said quite surprised himself by some of the shots he was playing. In the end, gets out for 71, coming off the field, thinking, yeah, okay, job done. I'm quite, you know, quite, quite happy with that. As Scotland chasing 300 and whatever. He said to be met by Grant, who said, not bawling and shouting in any way, but basically gave him a telling off and said, you've effectively thrown your wicket away. If you've got yourself up to a century playing low-risk cricket, uh, we were in a position where we could have chased that game. We could have won that game. And he said, and it just lit a little light in his head, Kyle, and, and said, you know, for the first time, he really started to get what Grant was, was meaning. And it was all about his own mindset, his own expectation. Did he really believe and did the team really believe that they could beat England that day? And of course, they went in saying all the right things as they always do. You know, we're going to give them a really good game. Yeah, we feel we've got a chance. And, and this was an England team, of course, at that stage, there for the taking. They'd just been absolutely hammered by Australia and New Zealand and the English press. Um, so they were really, really there for the taking if they were ever going to be. And we're going but, to, a, a, in a few days' time, also lose to Bangladesh. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but in the end... They'd won pretty comfortably. And, and Kyle said it was it was almost like, you know, did we really, really believe that we could beat them? And he said, and it was like a little switch was flicked. And then talking of Bangladesh, 
Scotland then play Bangladesh, and what does Carl do? Plays possibly his greatest innings in a in a Scotland shirt, 156, still the the highest record uh, or high score by uh, by an associate player at a at a World Cup. Absolutely transformative performance that then inspired so many other people. Callum McLeod saying, you know, watching that innings, it was like, whoa. You know, that's the bar. That's where I need to be. That's where we all need to be if we're going to compete against full members. And so it was this whole idea of, of the idea of, of, of significant contributions versus, versus winning performances, that that 71 was a significant contribution, you could say. But what would it have been had Kyle really gone for it in the way that he did against Bangladesh, really taken the game to England? and turning it into, into what could have been a winning performance. And it's these sorts of little, little insights that were absolutely fascinating. Callum McLeod was also very open too, because he had had a terrific tournament in 2014. He'd scored what's still Scotland's highest ODI score against Canada, 175. He'd been absolutely imperious, along with Preston Monson, in taking Scotland to victory in that tournament. But then he'd had a pretty horrible world cup and that had carried on to the world t20 uh where he'd only played one innings and it got run out for for one or two or something um and so he was in uh, a tough run of form and and callum said you know look it was something that i hadn't really experienced before and it was a really tough really tough time for me and he said anyway that he was brought up from durham he'd just been dropped by durham from the red bull side and was was then brought up to play a couple of ODIs that Scotland had against Afghanistan. And then when he got there, Grant had said, actually, no, I'm not going to play you. You can go back to Durham again. And they'd end up, ended up having a, as Callum described it, a heated exchange where he said that, that Grant really laid out, laid out the law. You know, you're happy with 20s and 30s. You, you're not looking to put your hand up. And, and he said, in my first reaction was of anger. Um, because I hadn't been spoken to in that way by, you know, no one at Durham had said that, no one at Scotland had said that to me before. But he said, I went away and I thought about it and he was right. And, you know, I really questioned myself and I, I had been happy just by putting in a, a significant contribution, if you like, 30 runs and thinking my job was done. And then that was the key to Callum then. Uh, he came back uh, up later in the summer, uh, scored hundreds in, in, uh, against UAE and Hong Kong, I think, were here then too. And that was transformative as far as, as Callum was, was concerned. So it was that that I found really interesting, that the challenges, the behind-the-scenes challenges that the players were presented with. You know, they and Grant didn't have it all easy all the time, but then again, if you want something worthwhile like that, if something is fundamentally transformative as that, well, it's not going to be, it's not going to be easy. So figuratively speaking, not everybody was holding hands and singing Kumbaya or not everybody was holding hands and singing Flower of Scotland together yes. at, at all times. <laughs> the reality of professional sport, of international sports. Yeah. So now looking forward again to bring it back to the USA rivalry, USA and Scotland split a couple games in the UAE in December 2019. And then again, USA and Scotland split two games back-to-back -back days in Texas in very hot conditions. But remarkably, Scotland comes back on the second of those back-to-back -back matches played on the Memorial Day Bank Holiday weekend at the end of May. And Richie Barrington 
produces a century in the second of those games to get Scotland to victory. That leads us into the Scotland-USA matches that are going to be coming up in Aberdeen. So, in your eyes, what is the state of the modern rivalry with USA and Scotland? And what can Scotland fans expect? And what can USA fans expect in terms of the level of competitiveness and intensity of, of these two teams and how they stack up against each other? It's a really fascinating one, isn't it? You're right in that recently it has been pretty even, even Stevens. I think a lot depends on the conditions in Aberdeen. As I saw, as I said, the, the first series uh, was an uncharacteristically dusty sort of track. I'm expecting another really, really good contest, actually, between the two sides. I think the, uh, a lot will depend on how the US bowlers uh, bowl on those pitches. Um, we saw, for example, Jan Freilink for um, uh, Namibia using the conditions really, really well uh, against uh, against Nepal. And so it's a lot of variation and and all of that kind of uh, kind of thing uh, will will be will be important. I mean, Scotland has a, a battery of of seamers. And, and pace bowlers well used to uh, well used to these conditions. It will be interesting to see uh, the likes of Chris McBride. I was very very impressed though watching watching that series with with Stephen Taylor. He was one that that really um, stood out for me. Uh, just a, a real quality quality player, and I think Scotland will be looking to target him uh, target him early. Uh, because once he gets in, he can obviously do a lot of damage very, very quickly. But yeah, I think it's all set up for a really, a really interesting series and uh, one that I'm very much looking forward to following again. Time for the favorite 11. 11 questions, cricket and non-cricket. Ready to rock and roll, Jake Perry. You're, are you ready to rock and roll? As somebody who loves his music, whose career oh, is yes. based around music outside of cricket for people who don't know, Jake Perry is a music <laughs> man. Are you, are you yes, ready to rock and roll, Jake Perry? Oh, ready to rock and roll. Always ready to rock and roll. Okay. Your favorite roommate on any cricket tour, Penny Cook or otherwise? I have never been on a cricket tour where I have had to room with someone at all. But if I went for kind of my favorite kind of would i go favorite teammate would that would that oh no that's we might have to substitute you're gonna have ruffle feathers and that that way no, i'm just that? thinking as we can, as we can I substitute that, it with that's not a good idea that's, that's not, not a good, good idea. idea no see this is the you thing i've enjoy. come across with these say, questions. okay even oh, even oh, when oh. i've asked the favorite roommate i always get players oh, do i have to pick a favorite i'm gonna piss off everybody else in my team why do i have to pick one roommate because before that it was give me a roommate who snores or who keeps you up who's who's your least yes. favorite roommate so i thought oh will, nobody wanted to say go. who their or their worst roommate was i thought i'd say oh let me give you who your favorite roommate is no oh, it's sorry, even worse no, i gotta pick oh, one. Oh, you're killing me i can tell you my favorite batting partner that's maybe that's maybe the the thing that i have some some great memories of batting uh a batting partnership with with dave aisley uh for for penny cook we would often opening the batting together always we would have a century partnership in years rather than runs uh, and occasionally we did approach a century we actually got 95 runs between us once which was like oh yeah i mean yeah that was a, a memorable day yeah dave ainsley your favorite deep fried scottish food delicacy what's the best thing that can be deep fried well as uh, as we were saying on the commentary the, the other day there are few 
foodstuffs that cannot be improved by the addition of batter and deep frying. But if what I will, I, I will always kind of go old school and have like like fish, you know, just the kind of standard bog standard haddock or, or, or whatever. But um, at a chip shop in St. Andrews once I had deep fried scallops. They were good. They were good. Ken, as a music man, this is a two pronged question, 3A and 3B. Your favorite piece of music, your favorite song, one, a lyrical song, and two, your favorite instrumental, if you want to call it a classical type of music. Wow, that's that's really tough, actually. Lyrical song. I'd probably go something kind of something, something classic. Henry Mancini, Moon River, something like that. There's some or summertime Gershwin. Oh my word. X-rated harmony. Summertime. Gershwin, <laughs> I, my favorite. I, one of my first, I, I gotta one of my first uh reports I ever did as a kid growing up in school. We had to pick a famous American, celebrate Americana. And one of the very first ones I ever did, and I had this elaborate report. I was in third or fourth grade, the Gershwin brothers, George and Ira. Everybody forgets Ira. No respect yeah, for Ira. Yeah. What about what about Ira? George, George gets all the love. Ira gets snubbed. Tin Pan Alley. There were two of them, George and Ira. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, right. Okay. Instrumental. I would go. Now, you see, I'm a, I'm a huge kind of 20th century classical music person. I'll go The Rite of Spring by Stravinsky because every time I hear it, I listen to something new in it. It's a great piece of music. If you listen to that, actually, then listen to any film score, John Williams, anything. It's all from all from the right of spring. So Summertime by Gershwin and The Right of Spring by Stravinsky, two outstanding choices. Your favorite cricket ground experience that you've had anywhere in the world? Love Lords. Lords, I would say. You know, you've got the museum there. You've got food wise. It's always it's always it's always great. Um, you know, and as a spectator, get a great view wherever you are uh, on the ground. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's probably quite a predictable, predictable sort of answer, but it's one that I, but it's a ground that I, that I really love. And then uh, if I, but if I was choosing a Scottish ground, favourite Scottish ground, I really like, I'm going to go Meikle Riggs. I love Meikle Riggs as a ground, which is Fergus Lee's ground in Paisley. Again, so it's a really nice setting. There's a road that runs just down by it. You just, uh, as you come around, as you're driving down to it, you look over the ground. Um, it's the one I talk about in the secret game. It's where uh, Vijay Mandraker played. Um, and they, they, they put uh, tarpaulins around all the trees, all the way around the ground so that people couldn't, couldn't see for free. They would, they would be charging people to come in to watch Mandraker play. So, uh, yeah, but there was lovely, so many, amazing grounds in scotland alp park that's another one actually your favorite cricketer of all time very personal choice if i went for a bowler i'd say malcolm marshall i loved used to love watching malcolm marshall bowl um just looked absolutely terrifying <laughs> to face and favorite batter it would be kumar sangakara just that cover drive just the elegance of that that's why that's why cricket is the greatest form of art. It's watching people like Sangakara play. Your favorite non-cricket athlete of all time? Steve Bull, Wolverhampton Wanderers striker, legendary. <laughs> From my, my hometown team. Oh yeah, yeah, many a happy hour watching Bully. 
dreadful first touch, deadly second. Trap it on his face, then stick it in the net. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> Your favorite place to eat out on tour away from home? Can't go wrong with places like Nando's, things like that. You know, always, always good in there. But I've kind of made a recent, <laughs> a recent discovery, which is Thai food. And I know that that's like a kind of slightly strange thing to discover. <laughs> like it's kind of been around a while, but uh, but I, it was something that I never thought I liked because I'd use like supermarket pastes for the green curry paste and whatever. But I I was playing a show not long ago, which was the first one I played after after the pandemic. So I played percussion in my other life as well. And um, and in between the matinee and the evening performance, we went out for for something to eat, and and someone said, "Oh, let's go to this Thai place." And I'd never, you know, I'd heard people talk about it, you know, the, about layers of flavor, but I had this Thai kind of duck red curry and it was like salty and sweet and sour all at once. It was amazing. So yeah, that's my, that's my latest thing. If I see a Thai restaurant, I'll seek that out just now. Do you have a go-to menu item on the Thai menu that's your specialty that you can't go without? I'm still I'm still kind of experimenting a little bit, but that yeah, that duck red curry would be my would be my first choice. Your favorite beverage of any kind? Coca-Cola. Full fat, none of this, none of this diet nonsense. I would, yeah, I would go with that. You can't beat the real thing. And I oh, witnessed no. it firsthand when I was broadcasting alongside Jake Perry for those tri-series <laughs> matches. Jake always had either a bottle or a can of Coke. None of that diet stuff, like you said, he had the red label, the original, the real thing in hand. I love it. Your favorite pizza topping? Ham and mushroom. Got a, yeah. a hybrid, not ham and pineapple, ham and mushroom. No, I don't mind ham and pineapple, but ham and mushroom. Although um, we had on the Cricket Scotland podcast, uh, Becky Glenn on recently, and, and we asked, you know, would you have pineapple on pizza? Because that's what you ask. And she said, oh, yeah, definitely. And mango on pizza, she said. Game changer is how she described it. I've never, never crossed my mind. mango, But according to Becky, mango on pizza is, is the way forward. Nando is one of the recent flavor additions that you can choose from mango and lime. It used to be lemon and herb was their standard mild option. Now they've added mango and lime recently. And I've, I've had the mango and lime. It's not universally available. You got to go to certain places to find it. But it is quite good. I do enjoy the mango and I'm so I, I kind of theorize and, and conceptualize why you might have mango on pizza. Interesting. Your favorite movie of all time. And I might have a one and a one A or a 10 and 10. A. We're up to question 10. Your favorite movie of all time and your favorite movie with a musical score that oh, makes yeah. it your favorite movie. Well, that makes oh that makes life easier. Um yeah, love yeah, love love movies as we're saying love. I love kind of things like Marx Brothers and Laurel and Hardy and all that kind of stuff. I think probably my favorite movie and my favorite movie film score would both come from Hitchcock. I think my favorite movie, North by Northwest, Cary Grant, absolute classic, great score by Bernard Herrmann. And then my favorite film score will be Psycho, game Bernard Herrmann, it, it, which is just genius. I mean, we talked about John Williams and and uh, and and how you know, with Jaws, the, the shark exists as music for, for, for the majority of the film. And by the time you see the shark, the first time you're scared of it, well, Psycho as well tells you so much it, it, through its music that the pictures don't tell you, you know, that's why, that's why film is, I suppose, the, the, the second greatest art form after cricket in that it kind of envelops all of the, 
all of the senses you know you've got your 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 sight and sound with dialogue and then you've got the music that that kind of involves you emotionally in it as well it engages that other layer of you in the experience and uh, uh, yeah i think the psycho score bernard herman does that does that brilliantly shower scene all of that stuff it's incredible you talk about jaws and then psycho so jaws you just got the the two notes and then psycho almost identical there's there's just this kind of screech produced by music and yeah same thing it's just one note one note just kind of repeated the repetition and the repetition is there with jaws but the value of repetition there's so many scores and and musical compositions where it's repetition just in different notes but the repetition is is what Um, makes it just stand out and just the core structure and the two of them the the repetition that and how it's elevates yeah and the thing about and the thing about that um as well that the the shower scene music it's uh what does it sound like sounds like bird cries and what have we just seen we've seen that norman stuffs birds the music tells you who the killer is oh sorry spoilers Uh, (laughs) uh, yeah so the music the music tells you um, it sets it up in the same way that the that, that that sequence with the drive, you know, to the motel sets it up. You know exactly what's going to happen because you've got the scene where, you know, Marion is, is playing in her head, uh, the conversations of people behind her as they're unraveling the fact that she's stolen this money and is running away with it. But the music that underscores it isn't of, a, isn't of chase or anything like that. It's a panic. It's a sheer panic. And, uh, and then uh, I'm always struck by that that bit where she's driving and it's nighttime and then the glare and then it starts raining and the rain is hitting the windscreen or the windshield and like showering against the windscreen and she's turning on the windscreen wipers which are these metallic things flashing backwards and forwards against the showering rain all very interesting it's all sets up beautifully you know what's going to happen it's great absolute genius love things like that last but not least your favorite show to binge watch I love Band of Brothers. That was absolutely awesome, the old HBO series. Um, and I was a little late in discovering Line of Duty, but I was really hooked on that uh, here in the UK uh, as well. And I like, yeah, comedies too. Um, the Thick of It, that's always a go-to one, kind of political comedy, especially relevant these days. Um, it, it all art imitating life and vice versa, you'll often find um yeah yeah so I'll, uh yeah i enjoy switching off with things like that ncis is on disney plus now i'm enjoying working my way through those as well i quite like things like that too band of brothers blast from the past when band of brothers came out that was huge it was yeah. again it was a year or two after awesome. after saving private ryan and the success of that and band of brothers came out a few years later there's tom hanks and steven spielberg on hbo this 10-part series for people who are tuning into this podcast now who some of our guests on the show have been born after Band of Brothers was was made and you might not have come across that on HBO. It's definitely worth going back. If you've, if you've got the HBO Max, it's another streaming service, all the stuff that's in the HBO catalog, there's so many great things. The Sopranos, first and foremost in my eyes, but Band of Brothers. And then kind of, if you want to call it the sister series to that, which I prefer, The Pacific, just from the standpoint that everybody knows about and so much, there's so much more attention paid to the European part of World War II and Normandy and D-Day and all that. But very few movies have really been done about the Pacific theater and yeah. what went on in the, in the Pacific and the stories 
it's not just the acting at some, but I think Band of Brothers also had this specific, definitely had it. They would have World War II veterans have interviews at the start of every episode where they talk about what they went through in terms of setting the scene for what is portrayed in the episode itself. So let's talk about the battle that they went through that's going to be the focus of the episode or or something else that was long-ranging over the course of months or the whole experience. And uh, Band of Brothers is incredible, and it won so many awards. But the Pacific came along a couple of years later, which probably didn't get as much attention. And it, it kind of, it's almost symbolic in the sense that, yeah, everything that to do with the Pacific theater in World War II leading up to and before the two atomic bombs were dropped in Japan doesn't really get the same amount of historical appreciation as, as what went on in Europe, which always fascinates me. There you have it. Jake Perry's favorite 11. Jake, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'll give you the final word. Anything else you want to say about music or cricket or you personally that people don't know already about you that you think they should know? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I, think, I think we've probably covered all the different, the different aspects of my, my personality and the various plates that I, that I spin in, in my life doing all of this. Yeah, which is just a great love, great love of mine, love. Scottish cricket, writing about Scottish cricket, talking about Scottish cricket. It's um, great. For people watching on YouTube, here it is. The Secret Game, Playing with Teeth. These are the books you need to get your hands on. Jake Perry, the first one, The Secret Game, and then Playing with Teeth. Jake Perry, along with Gary Heatley, co-authoring those two books. They are in a fine bookshop near you. Go out and get them. <laughs> Or you can get them online as well. Jake Perry, thank you so much for coming on the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast. Peter, thank you. Pleasure. My thanks again to Jake Perry for coming on the podcast. And you can follow Jake on Twitter at jperry underscore cricket. And he'll keep you up to date on everything to do with cricket in Scotland. Again, I want to remind everybody, if you haven't already done so, go to patreon.com to subscribe to the podcast. As an eagle, a captain, or a patriot, for as little as $3 a month, you can help keep the podcast going on an episode-by-episode basis. And I also want to remind everybody, if you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to the video version of the podcast on YouTube or the audio version on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor FM, and other podcasting platforms. You can get the latest edition of every episode of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast downloaded straight to your mobile device. That's it for this episode. I'm Peter Dalpenner reminding everybody, God bless America and God bless American Cricket. (laughs) 